Hi there, you're listening to the podcast version of 3CR's Monday Breakfast Show. Catch us live every Monday at 7am at 855 on your AM dial, streaming 3CR on the TuneIn app or at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy the show. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am until 8.30am. Good morning everyone. You are listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, My name's Will. Hello everyone. I'm sitting opposite Jackson. How are you going, Jackson? I'm pretty good. Nice to see you, Will. That's always on a Monday. And also James. How are you going, James? I'm great, yeah. You're very low down there, Jackson. (laughs) I have a a droopy microphone. (laughs) Radio is a visual medium, folks, just in case you didn't know. So um, Jackson's sliding down towards the ground because the microphone's kind of pointing weirdly. Um, but we'll fix that out in due course, and it doesn't matter to you <laughs> folks listening at home, so I don't know where, why we're spending too much. Just it's laid out like a lounge lizard <laughs> on a Monday morning. That's what it is. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's cold morning. No one wants to get out of their, get out of their houses. We'll go through the weather, um, when we start the alt news segment, so, um, but first of all, let's go through, um, a bit of what's been happening in the last week. Like, um, anything, anything big? Well, it's not just a cold morning weather-wise, but it's a cold morning for all of Australia, isn't it? Oh my god, I thought we were gonna, weren't going to talk about this. Talk about what? Um, we're talking about Nauru, right? And yeah. the ongoing... Yes. Um, yeah. I assume that's... I keep hearing the politicians talking about what a dark day it is for Australia, and I assume that we're finally going to turn the corner to have more humane refugee policies, um, stop trying to mm. steer up the um, ladder of arms importers, exporters... We're going to yeah, move to, yeah, yeah. you know, what what our values are of a fair and equitable mm. country. Because all of these behaviours, you know, could really affect the way the international community sees us as mm, a nation. That's you know, a the, the more that we lock up innocent people and yeah, want yeah. want to actively get involved in selling arms to countries all over the world to keep our manufacturing running, like okay. that could really make people around the world think this Australia. We can't trust them. We don't want to do business with them. That's what it could make people think. So Australian politicians collectively have had a road to Damascus moment where they realise that basically everything that they stand for is objectionable and hateful to humanity. Mm. Um, is, that, is that what's in the news right now? I think so. I, yeah. From what I, I understand, there was some kind of um, Australian convoy went over to South Africa. They are right. concerned about the effects of climate change and mm. the water running out in Cape mm. Town mm. and they've come back with a way of trying to be you know helping out other people other countries beautiful okay well um i mean that's that's not true just for the folks who don't know what's going on i feel like we probably should um, stop being facetious and actually well, it is. I don't want to talk about cricket. No, I don't want to talk about cricket anymore except no. to say it is outrageous how outraged people become <laughs> about a game. Yeah. When there's right. so many other things going on. Yesterday, well, yesterday was a big day for marches. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday was a Palm Sunday um, rally um, in support of asylum seekers and refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't able to make it because I was working, but I'm, I'm not sure if you, you two have heard anything about what happened. I know, I know there's going to be content relating to it during the week on the mm-hmm. breakfast show. So definitely tune in every Monday from seven, uh, every weekday yes. from seven a.m. 
Um, also big marches in the United States and across the world mm-hmm. related to gun law reform. Yeah. They were some really inspiring pictures, weren't they? They really were. And it's all led by the youth as well. Like, mm. um, I was watching only a part of the live stream of um, the event in Washington, D.C., um, where all of the speakers were students and young people and um, the only occasions where you had sort of meaning um, spoken input by by older non-students, by, um, you know, people who aren't um, dire- directly associated with the campaign, um, the Never Again specifically campaign. Wait, is, no, no, not Never Again. Um, uh, time's up. No, no, that's the wrong one. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I'm not making a Who's joke. That? I generally can't remember the hashtag. Mm. Um it's not every town that's the organization that's been supporting this, but the basically the students um operating out of Marjorie Douglas Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida mm. in the wake of that shooting that happened um a month and two weeks ago or something like that. March for our lives. March for our lives. That's it. March for our lives. Sorry. And Sorry everyone. One of the things I, I saw this morning as well was that um there was coverage of uh girl who was 11, um, a black girl, and she mm. was speaking on behalf of, well, you know, to raise, I guess, awareness to the fact that, um, you know, black lives that are being lost to gun violence as well, and mm. I think that that's pretty inspiring at 11 years old, yes. particularly, to yeah. be yeah. Um, articulating that kind of um, intersectionality of the um, yeah. Gun crisis in America. And, and well. the, the organizers whose, um, whose origins are as, um, victims, um, and bystanders at the, sh- the shooting of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, um, high school in Florida, they who are sort of the public face of the campaign, they're aware of their positions of privilege and they've spoken quite publicly about how they're disappointed that a lot of the momentum comes from the fact that they're from a well-off um, conservative region of the United States um, being subject to gun violence, whereas, you know, they've spoken about Chicago being uh, a site of a lot of gun violence, and it's usually directed towards poor um, communities of colour, and um, uh, that's something that I'm quite impressed with, is that the, the activism of these young people isn't just for themselves, it's for the community at large, and that's something we can learn from. Yeah, and they brought together um, survivors from previous shoot- mm, shootings yep. in not-so-glamorous areas, didn't they? That was part of the... That's right. On. Victims of the shooting at Pulse nightclub and also of non-mass shootings, the things that don't tend to grab the ha- headlines in the United States. Just the daily grind of gun violence. Can we talk about Tasmania? Yes, we can. Talk about the um, the proposals to... Um, to relax gun laws under the under the the government the state government down there, mm. um, and it seemed to be a bit of a, an election horse trade or something. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I entirely under the, understand the story, and that's something that um, I strongly encourage listeners to follow up in in your own time. But um, yeah, I just like we're we're not at United States level. Obviously, in this country, yeah, very when it comes strange to timing. Violence. Very strange timing but to bring it up again. Yeah, it's such a strange timing. You'd think, I don't know, they'd be more sneaky about their their awfulness. Mm. Anyway, um, but yeah, the other thing is, you know, like the the gun laws we have in place, you know, certainly don't preclude people from going out and getting a license and getting a gun. My mm. understanding is there's more guns in private hands now than before the new legislation was brought in. Mm. So I'm I'm often surprised that um. You know, there is pushes from certain elements of the community to make guns more readily available when they are mm-hmm. available. They're just well regulated, I suppose, yeah. in Australia. So it's, it is an interesting, um, 
impetus to want it to be simpler. Regulated in some hands, we still have a monopoly of violence to the state, which mm. doesn't well, um, regulate their yeah. kind of weaponry. On that note, we'll have more time to talk about this when we start alternative news in a couple of seconds. I know we really only we just started the store, the, the show. I mean, you know, our whole show is alternative news. Um, but let's uh, <laughs> let's give a quick rundown of what's happening in the show, sure. um, just so people know what to look forward to at. Um, of course, in, in a couple of seconds, we'll be starting officially <laughs> the alternative news segment. Um, but at 7.15, um, who do we have coming on the show, or what, what are we going to be listening to, James? Um, we've got an interview with Tim Singleton-Norton, who's the chair of Digital Rights Watch, and I actually spoke to him the other day. Um, it's in regards to Cambridge Analytica, ah. um, which is certainly something that's been in the news, and yeah, it's something that we've kind of mentioned a few times as mm. well on the show over the last few months and yeah so that'd be really great yeah and that's a that's a deep dive because we've got quite an extended um interview yep. on that one we'll be breaking it up in the middle so you'll have time to go get a cuppa and then uh, come back or um whatever you need to do and then at, at around seven we'll be speaking to Catherine temple who's the senior policy officer of consumer action law center consumer action law center um is um assisting witnesses to the royal commission into misconduct in the banking superannuation and financial services industry it might sound dry, but it's real people's stories mm. about their interaction with um, a... Well, it's unavoidable, yeah. isn't it, in our society? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, mm. uh, people have contact with banks, yes. um, like, you know, whether it's yep. buying their first home or, yep. you know, um, making sure they have enough money to, you know, pay for consumables on yep. a day-to-day basis, you know, getting a car to go and tour from work. That's, that's right. some horrible Absolutely, uh, yeah. insights into that and so sector, we'll which I'm sure really Catherine... appreciate having Catherine on the show to talk about the, the fairly, very shockingly widespread misconduct in that industry. Yeah. Um, and then after that, we'll have Over the Wall. Um, Over the Wall is going to be speaking to Josh Cullen and again, and we'll be uh, looking back at, um, looking forward to Woolworths and um, what's happening in the... Um, Are you talking about enterprise agreements? Enterprise agreements, yeah. And some of the laws that have changed around the way they are presented to staff. That's right. And then um, after that, we'll be having author and co-author of the book False Claims of Colonial Thieves, which is a book of poetry. Um, The author's name is Charmaine Paper Talk Green, who's um, on our side of the country, so we'll finally have time to um, to get down and have a conversation over mm. the phone. Hopefully we'll, we'll hear some of the pieces from the book and um, mm-hmm. maybe hear about you folks at home and how you can get your hands on a copy. Um, and then what are we, what are uh, we doing at finish, the end of the show? Finishing off the show at 8.15, we've got Ros Ward uh, coming in. Now, Ros Ward would be well known for her work with Safe Schools, fantastic program that runs in a lot of... Uh, schools around Victoria still. Uh, she's also the media coordinator for Marxism 2018, which is on next weekend, a conference looking at socialist and Marxist ideas. Uh, the conference theme this year is Radical Ideas for a World in Turmoil, which I think is a really interesting topic. And she's just going to come in to talk about highlights, guests, you know, how to get tickets. There is some still available. Cool. So, yeah, and then she'll be here to talk to us. It's a action. It's a jam-packed show is what I used to say every show, but it is. It really is. So stay tuned, you're listening to Monday Breakfast.
So you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, uh, and we are doing a very quick alternative news because at 7.15 we've got a story to play. Uh, I just wanted to mention something that, uh, a bit of news that James actually broke last Monday morning um, about a strike down on the Melbourne ports uh, with Cube, uh, Q-U-B-E, one of the biggest employers down there, biggest employers of stevedores who load and unload the ships. Um, the workers are still striking down there, and one of the major issues they're striking about this article uh, on Red Flag by Ryan Stanton, just published two days ago. Um, you know, one of the issues that they are asking for is standardised rosters, uh, rosters that allow people to get adequate rest uh, between shifts, because there has been a number of deaths on Melbourne's waterfront over the last 12 months, I think five five or so over the last 24 months, I should say. And there was one just a few weeks ago uh, where a man in his 50s had a heart attack while at work. There's been some studies published recently that there's a causative relationship between ongoing um, unmonitored, unregulated shift work and heart disease because of the stress it puts on the body. And not only that, when you are going to walk exhausted, when you've done two 12 or 13-hour shifts with only a six or seven-hour break in between, it heightens the risk of, you know, uh, blunt trauma incidents, you know, falls, uh, dropping of objects. So it seems like with such dangerous and risky work, it would be common sense to have some uh, pretty strong safeguards around um, when you uh, when you work and when you rest. Um, but like a lot of people, Tony, uh, you know, in a quote in the article says, a lot of us have been working irregular hours, a few night shifts here, a day here, back to nights, an evening shift, then back to days, all in a fortnight, and sometimes with just eight hours between shifts. And, um, you know, some of the workers down on the picket that uh, Ryan Stanton went down and spoke to were just really disappointed that the company hadn't even allowed the workers a minute's silence for their deceased mate. They were just uh, expected to keep working. Um, And there's been some pretty kind of, you know, what's the word, belligerent activities by Cube during this uh, negotiation process where they've threatened to tear up the existing agreement if a new agreement can't be reached, you know, using those kind of heavy-handed tactics. So I just wanted to let our listeners know um, that that's still ongoing, um, the the strike, to my understanding, and, um, yeah, get down. Yeah, okay. Now, just quickly before we move on to our next item, um, I just thought letting folks know what's going on inside of the house if you haven't left yet or if you're in the car and you've got the nice warm um, heating on. It's about 11.4 degrees right now, so pretty cold. We're looking at a shower or two, especially in the afternoon, and it's going to get up to a top of 19. So stay warm, rug up, and uh, try to stay undercover because it may rain, um, you know, Melbourne at any moment. It's brutal, this change. It you is. feel the winter coming. Sudden change. Mm. That's Melbourne for you. You're listening to Monday Breakfast. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Hello everyone, uh, this is James, and I'm here with Tim Singleton-Norton, who's the chair of Digital Rights Watch and we're going to have a little bit of a chat about uh, what Digital Rights Watch does and about Cambridge Analytica, which is something that's been um, particularly in the news over the last week, but something that uh, has come to quite a few people's attention, I guess, ever since the election of of Donald Trump 
and of um, Brexit in, in Europe. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. So I guess to start with, could you just give us a little bit of a rundown um, as to what the Digital Rights Watch is? Yep, so um, so the organisation was only formed in 2016, uh, largely in response to Australia's introduction of mandatory metadata retention laws. Um, a bunch of activists and nerds got in a room and decided that something needed to be needed to happen here. Um, and there is a, a bit of work that's already been going on for decades in this space, um, mostly from our colleagues at uh, Electronic Frontiers Australia. But what we saw was a need to kind of combine the human rights worlds with the digital world. So that's really at its core what we're trying to do is is take a human rights framework and place it into an online world um, by educating people about what their digital privacy rights are and how they're not being upheld currently by Australia's and other governments. And how, have you seen um, how have those worlds been able to kind of connect together? Because you can have, I guess on one hand, you know, people who are human rights activists and um, individuals who've been involved in that kind of thing for a long time, perhaps not always having... Um, as much kind of a understanding of some of the newer technologies coming in and, and how is it to be able to bridge that kind of gap? It's been quite welcoming to see how we can bring the two worlds together. Um, just last year I spoke at the Australian Council for Inter- International Development Conference um, and the examples there were when we intervene into other places around the world to help people in need, we sometimes forget to protect their own privacy and the data about what what we collect on them. Um, and there's countless examples of that where I think that industry does amazing work but is not really equipped to understand the risks that they're associating with people. Um, take, for example, if you're a refugee and you enter into a UNHCR-controlled camp, you are biometrically tagged. Um, you have your fingerprints taken. All data about who you are is recorded. Now, the purpose of that is entirely laudable. What then happens to that data? Who owns that data? Who can access it? And who can use it against those people when they are already persecuted? If a foreign government got hold of it, they could use it to target the persecution. So those are the kind of things where we're hoping to reach into those worlds and not tell them how to do their jobs, but try and educate them and empower them to be more aware of the risks. I guess it's one of those things when, you know, you're sort of taught from a really young age to never sign a form unless you read it. And I think if you're presented with a physical form that you, you know, look through that and try to make sure that you're not signing away to something that you... You know, you you can't get out of because we know that signing something carries a legal weight. But online, we click that we agree to um, sign all kinds of things without paying any attention to what they are. And I guess that's where, you know, that conversation is then happening afterwards of do you know what what you signed and, and, you know, what's happening to your information that's being put out there. Yeah, exactly. And and as you sort of said in the intro, the Cambridge Analytica story is a prime example of that. Um, people enter into a bargain with an online provider such as Facebook, and we all just scroll to the bottom of the terms and conditions and click yes. Um, what we're doing in that is handing over implicitly all of our control over our own personal data in return for a service. Now, if you go into that informed, that's okay. That's a transaction you can do. You can actually say, I am willing to give up my privacy to get a service in return. But I doubt most people are actually aware of the transaction they're entering into. What the Cambridge Analytica story has shown is that what's the risk? What could happen at the at the horrible end? Now, the comments that have been made um, by Mark Zuckerberg and the Facebook response is entirely reasonable. They actually are not uh, responsible for that breach. That was a breach that happened against them by a third party. But the very ecosystem that we engage in, how we actually give over that control, that's the questionable thing. Is Facebook uh, beholden to be more clear about what, it, in, in what the 
bargain that you're entering into is at the start, and then what steps do they take to protect your data on your behalf. Now, the problem is that Facebook, at its core, believes it owns your data when you click OK. And what we're wanting to do is have more of an informed debate about people who understand that they own their data and they are giving it to Facebook in return for a service. And how much control do they have over that that bargain? Can they tweak it? Can they change it? Or are they just beholden to Facebook's rules or no rules? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess before we go further into that kind of thing, which something we really wanted to talk about, perhaps you could explain a little bit to people about the Cambridge Analytica um, scandal, I guess, of what's happened because um, as we were speaking just before we started, that it's something that uh, I've heard a little bit about and, and been trying to engage with people ever since the Trump and Brexit, um, the information came out how that was being used. But it's been difficult to kind of convey exactly what's been happening until the last week when a whole lot of information has kind of come out. Yep. Um, so as I said, when you enter into Facebook and you agree to use Facebook, you give over certain information about yourself. Facebook then collects that data as you keep using it. And part of that is to profile you so that they can target ads and sell that advertising data to other people to pay for the service because they're not asking you for money. So if people are okay with that, that's fine. That's how Facebook works. A couple of years back, Facebook then opened up what they call their developer platform. And that allowed any third-party provider to latch into that data and use it for other purposes. Um, and that, again, is fine in theory. It's things like if you wanted to link your Spotify and your Facebook account, Spotify would be more accurate in predicting what music you want to listen to. Now, that's a service you want, and you want it to be more rigorous and actually have more data. Um, but the problem is that that developer platform was incredibly open and it allowed people to take whatever they wanted out of Facebook profiles. In this example, um, a researcher at a university decided to do a psychometric profile test, created a very innocuous app which just asked a bunch of quiz questions. Now, that quiz questions were designed to then figure out whether it could predict how people were going to act in certain ways, what their voting predilection might be, how they act to certain things. The problem is that it didn't just suck the data of the people taking the quiz, it also sucked all of their friends. So something in the realm of 200,000 people took the app, which then, by the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, actually gave you 50 million profiles. And that was hoovered out. And that happened back in 2007, I think it was. Um, Facebook soon realised that that wasn't a good model, and they actually changed that in 2014. So they corrected that mistake, and no longer can apps actually access that breadth of data. But it had already been taken. Now, then what happened was Cambridge Analytica came along and said, we can use this. Steve Bannon, here's how we'll sell it to you. And they used it to target ads to people and sway the elections, particularly in the US and other places. So there's a, there's a three-step process that happened there. Facebook kind of didn't set the rules right in the first place. A third party decided to take way more data than they really should have. And then they sold it to someone who used it for nefarious means. And that has only just come to light now. Um, Facebook, as I said, have kind of fixed that loophole, but it was already too late. And so the way that it was used for the election was, I guess, to generate some fake news is, you know, I guess it becomes such a catchphrase now, but that there's really been um, how like that was able to in, uh, interact with, with the actual voting public. And from what I understand, it's mostly to not to convince people of, say, you know, in this instance, Donald Trump's um, policies or to vote for him, but it's actually to convince you to not to vote for the other person. So in the instance of um, America, where it's not compulsory voting, then it's actually just convincing people not to vote. 
Yeah, it's social profiling to push people in a certain way and push their buttons that you know can be pushed quite effectively. So if you can profile someone based on what they've been liking and commenting on and engaging with, and you can figure out that they might be a bit racist and they might be a bit anti-immigration and they might be a bit scared about uh, an influx of immigration, for example, and then you micro-target ads, and I might add they're dark ads, they're not physically publicly visible mm. they're specially targeted just to these people and they say things like you know all those mexicans are coming for your jobs you know that or the wall will help us or we don't want people from middle east over here because they don't have our values you have all of this and people get bombarded with it that's the world they see they don't see the facebook that you and i see because we're in a city melbourneites mm-hmm. it's a very different world so then they're predisposed to, as you say, decide not to go and vote. Or if they do turn up, they go, oh, well, I'm a bit scared about that. And that Hillary person is not talking in the way that I like, so I'm not going to vote for her. So you can have huge power over people. And when we talk about the way that political campaigns have run in the past, those tactics are used, but they're visible. You can see them in the public billboards, in the press releases, in the events and speaking. These you can't see. They're actually targeted right down, and it's like the equivalent of grabbing everyone into a dark room and telling them exactly what you think they want to hear and then grabbing the next person and doing it again. And that's where I think it's very dangerous because there's no checks and balances. There's no one actually watching to see how this stuff is working out. That was Ben Harper. Please don't talk about murder while I'm eating. And we are listening to an interview that I conducted with... Tim Singleton-Norton, and um, we're going to return to that now. It was something, that a version of this was forecast, I think it was two seasons ago in House of Cards, that when they were having the election there, one of the... Um, well, they were approached to use a, a form of, of the um, Cambridge Analytica. So, yeah, it's really interesting, I guess, from that element where it's come into pop culture... Uh, already, but now it's taken a couple of years to actually become into the um, the minds of, of the majority of people. So, I mean, how do we, all of the, you know, a lot of this kind of using Facebook and, you know, trying to understand how our data is stored and shared and taken and all of these kind of things are, you know, can seem quite abstract and difficult to, for people to grasp. And so, how, I mean, how do we have that conversation to look at people changing their habits of how to how to do things or, or just you know like you said you may make that choice to continue to do that but how do we make people informed in making that choice unfortunately i think it's through big stories like this something bad has to happen before we react um and it's it's bad that this has happened and we can actually look back through history and maybe we can question whether the validity of that last US election can be warranted. Um, We can't revise history so that's a done deal but it will make people stop and think and that's exactly what's happened in the last week is people just went, well hang on. In the past we've kind of said, oh yeah, that's just how Facebook works or I don't really care, I've got nothing that I need to worry about in terms of my personal data. This is a prime example of why you should be worried and I think it also allows us to open up to a bigger conversation about People generally assume that even though, you know, Google might have a do-no-harm policy and Facebook might try and change their regulations, they still at heart are corporate entities that are seeking to make a profit in whatever form. Um, The bigger question is about what about those entities that don't have a commercial aspect to them, and by which I mean our own governments. Um, Our own governments, our own political parties do this kind of profiling, they do this kind of surveillance, they do these kinds of privacy invasions. And just because we're not aware of them overtly, there's no big scandal.
scandal that's hitting, there is still a level of concern that I think people should have. So in terms of what, what people should do, they're doing what I want them to do right now, which is question and actually say, well, hang on, what, it, what is the bargain that I've entered into and what onus do I have to kind of be in control of that situation? That conversation and that conversation happening in, in the high streets as well as happening in the halls of parliament will drive change. Um, we just recently saw it's about to come into effect in the EU, drastic changes to data protection, which actually put the onus back on the, the put the control back into the user. Um, so any user in the EU can actually go to a company or entity and say, what do you know about me? You must tell me. Mm. And they have to hand that data over. And the next step should be to be able to say, as Google has a policy within France, of the um, you can actually request that you are deleted. Now, it's huge responsibility, and Google pushed back very hard against it because it's a big issue to try and delete someone from a record, but that's the law. And that, I think, should be the standard. People should be able to be in control of their own personal profile, whether it's a digital one or a physical one. I want to pick up on putting together a couple of things you said. One was um, the phrase you used about the kind of catch-all data, um, and that reminds me of one other thing, which when you put together with uh, the government and you know potentially other areas outside of, of the corporations that we need to um, be thinking about, you know, whether we need to be concerned about, but certainly thinking about, um, and I guess it's, you know, when we look at the Five Eyes security system, we look at Pine Gap, and they actually have, you know, a, a program called Catch All, and where they are looking to catch all of our data mm-hmm. and to store it. And that, to me, seems like, um, you know, a bigger story than the Cambridge Analytica in a lot of ways. And so I guess that's the next kind of thing I see is how do we um, how do we show people that these things are, are really linked and there's actually quite a big issue going on in terms of how our data is being used, as you said, by our governments as well. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, it's the reason that my organisation formed in the first place was in reaction to that when Australia just said we're going to have unwarranted, unwatched uh, mass surveillance of the entire citizenry. We're going to compel telcos to record it all and hand it over to um, ASIO. ASIO has an arrangement with the US government, so it all sucks up to Langley and goes to NSA. And we saw with um, Edward Snowden's revelations in 2013 of the prison program, the scale at which is being collected. And it's not just US citizens. It's the five eyes, as you say. It's UK and Canada and New Zealand and Australia. So we are being watched. What is happening with that data, we don't know. Mm. We also don't have any judicial oversight um, over whether it's being used ethically and for what purposes. And I think Myself and my colleagues have always said we want law enforcement agencies to have the tools they need to do their job. We actually task them with keeping us safe. But we want to know what those things are and we want to have the ability to say when it's gone too far. With this program, we have no ability to do that. The linkage to the responsibility of social media is an interesting one. And again, Snowden's revelations actually showed, you know, the complicity of, complicity of places like Facebook where they just said, yeah, all right, here's a back door. Off you go. You know, if you're compelling us to give that data over, we will. Now, some privately pushed against it. I'll give Google its credit. It did actually say no until it was compelled to do so. But it's still not good enough. Um, the NSA and the US government did realise that these social media companies do a way better job of profiling people than they did, so they'll just take that data. So that's the link there, is that hopefully this scandal will show, well, Facebook took your data and then someone who was scary used it against you maybe you should think about whether your government is scary and if they're using it against you. Because I guarantee you that they're not using it ethically um, because no one's watching them. 
And I guess, yeah, you talked about some of the ways that, you know, perhaps we can try to, like, either as individuals or, or some of the work that Digital Rights Watch is doing itself. So are there kind of um, legislation or policies or things like that that you see are things that we should be trying to advocate or, you know, assisting Digital Rights Watch and other groups to be able to be pushing for in Australia? I think in this instance right now it's been welcoming to see quite a lot of calls for um, the current exemption to the Privacy Act that political parties enjoy to be removed. Um, it's ludicrous. Um, Organisations uh, and uh, media outlets and individuals are beholden to the Privacy Act. Political parties are not. And that's purely because they wrote the laws. Mm. They gave themselves a broad exemption. And that means that come election time, uh, any major political party can get access to the Australian Electoral Commission data, which normal citizens can't. They then mash that up with other data sources that they've used. They can use it for whatever purposes they use. They are completely without the bounds of the Privacy Act. That's nuts. So we need to change that. Um, the next thing is actually bringing the conversation on to the government surveillance programs and what we can do. I mean, we've been calling for a number of years of an immediate repeal of the program. Um, if we're not going to see that, we need at least judicial oversight or parliamentary oversight, at least. At the moment, the minister, um, which terrifyingly is going to be Peter Dutton once he gets his big home affairs department, is the person who is overseeing that. That needs to change. Um, and then I think there are other steps that actually would go a long way towards ensuring that the public have an understanding of what their digital rights are. You know, we have a human rights commission and they are tasked with upholding the various parts of human rights that we hold dear. Now, obviously, um, Gillian Triggs copped a lot last year for actually standing up on those human rights. But one thing um, before he left Parliament, Scott Ludlam actually called for a digital rights commissioner. And I think that would go a long way to actually acknowledging that human rights frameworks have, have not kept stead with the rise of digital technologies and we need specialties um, there's no way that you could predict the rise of an organization like my own 10 five years ago um, because it wasn't a field that needed this focus so i think we need to have that reflected in government oversight bodies as well the digital rights commissioner would go a long way unfortunately um scott ludlam is a big loss to particularly this kind of work i think and i think any voices that are you know, willing to be a part of this conversation is really, really important. And, um, yeah, I think that in a lot of ways it's difficult that it seems to be an issue kind of taken up by the left as per se because, you know, it's it truly is something that it is going to affect and is affecting everybody. So, you know, I mean, I certainly have my political views generally, but I think that it's something that, you know, really all sides of politics, except unless you have a, you know, unless you're Peter Dutton, who already has access to that kind of information, then we, we should be protected under, you know, our rights and have a lot more say in what we, we are and, and are not sharing. And I think it's not just for um, people that are politically, socially active and, and that kind of thing as well, but, you know, I don't think people don't want um, information, photos of their family and things like that shared to unnamed organisations and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, and I'll give credit to when we first formed Digital Rights Watch, um, one of our, our inaugural board members was actually Chris Berg, who was a member of the IPA. So very different political persuasion to my own. And Chris and I came at it from very different perspectives, him from a libertarian individual control point of view and mine from more of a collectivism. But we both agreed that these were issues that needed addressing. Now, I think that's a very healthy way to approach these issues. As you say, they should not be left and right issues. They should not be a Greens or a Labor or a Liberal issue. They should be about upholding the principle of privacy and individual control. How you get there 
is different paths. Um, but we've been working quite closely with a range of different organisations, taking the the you know non-partisan approach to try and achieve the change because you know we're never going to achieve the change if we align ourselves with a certain movement. Well, it's been really great to talk to you today, Tim, and I really appreciate it because it's certainly something that I, as I said, I've been trying to have conversations with people with for a while, and hopefully this is an interview that can really um, help to open up that kind of conversation with a lot of people. So thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Dear listeners, the annual Good Friday charity radiothon of the Australian Medical Aid Foundation will kick off from 9am to 6.30pm on Friday the 30th March. 3CR is dedicating its media space to support this noble cause. Therefore, 3CR's regular program will not be on air during this time. The funds raised from this 10-hour radiothon will be utilized to supply medical aid, equipment, training, patient-centered care programs and resources to those affected by 30 years of war in the north and east of Sri Lanka. You too can become a generous partner by calling us on 03-9419-8377 during the radiothon on 30th Friday to donate towards this wonderful initiative. you're listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio, whether you're listening streaming online on 3CR Community Radio Digital, 3CR Radio Digital Radio, rather, or if you're listening to us in a podcast in the future, um, definitely give us some feedback. You can contact me on Twitter, William underscore Ilium. Um, Otherwise, we've got a Facebook page, actually, 3CR Community Radio, uh, sorry, 3CR Monday Breakfast is how you'd reach us on Facebook. Um, you know, reach out to us, let us know what you're thinking. A couple of people already have, and thank you so much for doing that. Um, so we're going to move on to a discussion with uh, Catherine Temple, who is Senior Policy Officer of the Community, uh, Consumer Action Law Centre, um, the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services Industry, has dra- just wrapped up its first um, first session of hearings. It's been about a fortnight of, um, of witnesses presenting evidence and their experiences um, of misconduct in the financial services sector. And um, we've got Catherine Temple, like I said earlier, from Consumer Action Law Centre on the line right now. Catherine, are you there? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Shall we get straight into it? Absolutely. Wonderful. Okay, so for the folks listening at home who aren't fully um, aware of the um, the Royal Commission and what, what its aims are, can you give us just a very brief overview of what um, what exactly is going on on William Street? Yes, so the Royal Commission uh, was announced uh, at the end of last year uh, by the Prime Minister, um, and it came at the end of a lot of very heavy lobbying um, from Labor and, and and other you know other sides of politics as well, and eventually even the banks saying you know we need we need this Royal Commission, um, and so. What is different to a Royal Commission um, than, a, than a normal inquiry is that it has really broad-ranging powers um, to compel witnesses and compel documents. So we're getting quite a unique look into what happens in the black box of banking and financial services. Um, and we're also seeing some pretty high-up executives of the banks uh, being hauled over the coals in a 
real court-like forum um, rather than a political forum. Um, and it's been very um, useful to see the kind of misconduct that's happening behind closed doors. Uh, so the first two weeks were um, quite explosive in many ways, uh, and we've only just begun. So it'll be very yeah. interesting to see where we go from here. You say explosive. I think some of that might be a reference to the personal stories that um, witnesses have presented. The Consumer Action Law Centre um, has facilitated a lot of these witnesses presenting their testimony. Um, I, I was struck really by the story of uh, Robert Regan and his experience with um, with ANZ Bank. Um, are you able to give us a, a, a characterisation of his, his statements, Robert Regan's um, experience? Yeah, so Robert is a 72-year-old pensioner, um, lives down on the Mornington Peninsula, uh, and sadly his wife passed away a couple of years ago um, after many, many um, years of marriage. And uh, he sought out a companion on an online dating site and unfortunately he became embroiled in an online romance scam. And the person he thought he was communicating with uh, turned out to be two men uh, that were scammers. Uh, and he approached the bank uh, to get a loan uh, and all of that money was basically funnelled into this scam. Um, the problem from the bank's point of view um, is that there were many, many red flags that should have been picked up and the loan itself was inherently unaffordable and, in fact, evidence came out during the hearing um, that suggested the only reason that loan was granted was on the basis that he would have to sell his home uh, to make the repayment. Um, and there's a pretty strong presumption in the law that if, if that's how what you have to do to make repayments, then you, then you shouldn't get that loan. Um, so the bank was really um, hauled over the coals by council assisting um, the commissioner and, and, you know, Robert bravely took the stand and told his story. And, and so, you know, it was, it was a, a very emotional day, I think, um, for a lot of us who have supported him up, up until that point. And it wasn't the only presentation of very emotional um, witness statements. We've also got reports out of The Guardian of a gentleman, David Harris, who um, uh, who has a gambling addiction and whose um, who's spending was um, encouraged or at least facilitated by Commonwealth Bank and eventually ended up with a debt of $35,000 on his credit cards. And um, it's, just, it's just really shocking that the... Sort of the the lack of oversight, which seems to be a thread that runs through a lot of the a lot of the character characterizes a lot of the misconduct. Um, so apart yeah. from apart from lack of oversight from banks, what other um, uh, I don't know how you, how you describe it? Just you know, mm-hmm. breaking of of community guidelines and community accepted mm. rules. Are, are you seeing? Yes, there, I mean there really are some strong things coming out, and it's not just misconduct, but also conduct that falls below community standards and expectations. So the Commission is looking at, at both aspects. Um, and I think we are seeing strong themes um, in in lending, which was the subject of the first uh, two weeks of hearings, um, of misconduct and misconduct that falls below community expectations. And it's not just a lack of uh, oversight, although that's really important. Um, we're also seeing um, serious conflicts of interest about the way staff and third-party um, sort of brokers and intermediaries are being paid that really incentivises them to break the law, basically, uh, and sign people up to loans that they can't afford. Um, and, you know, we're seeing systems and products designed to set people up to fail, really, and then the banks either blaming or abandoning the victims when it all goes wrong. Uh, and, you know, it's, 
been uh, quite eye-opening to see the extent to which this unfair contact conduct has really been uh, institutionalised in many ways um, and you know, systematically implemented in the banks. And uh, hopefully we see some changes coming out of this. Catherine, you, you mentioned distraction here. You mentioned at the start that the banks themselves um, had in the end said that we need this investigation. Were you surprised when uh, Councillor Assisting Rowena War uh, was commenting that certain documentation hadn't really been delivered on time, it was uh, minimal from certain banks, that they were still waiting on documentation, they got documentation quite late and couldn't properly um, analyse it or understand it before uh, bringing the witnesses in. And also some of the commentary, I think it was from ANZ, about one of their third-party um, brokers, mortgage brokers, that when they were bought these requests for home loans, they, it was too complicated, too time-consuming to do a proper... Um, kind of risk assessment or analysis of these brokered home loans, you know, resulting in a lot of people not being able mm. to repay what were, um, you know, uh, loans they couldn't afford. What what can we read into that? Some of the banks' um, reticence and you know even you know that that dismissal of of the need for, for you know or saying that the oversight is just too difficult. Isn't that pretty much the bank's responsibility? One of their core responsibilities. It is absolutely so. Both. Um, brokers and the bank have legal responsibility uh, when it comes to making sure people can afford the loans that they're signed up um, to. So that was a pretty worrying statement. And I think Commissioner Hayne put it best when he suggested that there was an awkward trade-off happening between administrative convenience and complying with the law. Um, so you know, cutting, cost, cutting costs on compliance and uh, making sure you remunerate people for doing the right thing um, and you know, and actually complying with the law. So I think that was a really interesting comment and certainly reflects our experience. Um, but in terms of the, the bank's um, cooperation with the Commission itself, it's pretty disappointing to see that they're not wanting to be um, upfront. Uh, there's estimates that the banks are spending between 150 and $200 million each on lawyers um, and the associated PR, I imagine, that goes with a Royal Commission. Uh, and to think that those kinds of resources are available to the banks and they can't comply with basic requests from the Commission. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do wonder um, where that money is going. And at the end of the day, it's customers, it's us who are, who are paying for, for those fees that the banks are paying out to those lawyers. So, you know, it is disappointing um, that, that they're not being more upfront. Alrighty. Um, well... We're coming to the end of our time, unfortunately. I'd love to spend more time sp- uh, speaking about the Royal Commission, but there's there's more to come. On April the 16th, there's going to be a second hearing um, on William Street again. Uh, what are your what are your hopes for um, for what the the Royal Commission will produce in the future? What we would really like to see is some serious consequences for not breaking, you know, for not complying with the law. Um, so we, ironically, have some of the best responsible lending laws in the world. Uh, it's just that no one's complying with them. So what we would like to see is compensation for um, consumers who have been signed up to loans that they never should have and where the law has been broken, but also some really strong powers for the corporate regulator and some tough penalties for bankers when they do the wrong thing uh, to encourage more compliance. So that's, that's really what we would like to see come out of the Royal Commission at the end of the day. Yeah, let's give that regulator some teeth. That's what I want to see. Absolutely. Well, we'll be reporting more on this in the future. Catherine Temple is the Senior Policy Officer for the uh, Consumer Action Law Centre. You can follow them on Twitter at consumer 
underscore action, and we'll be putting up links on our website as well, uh, further information about the Royal Commission. Uh, Catherine, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Monday Breakfast, you're listening to on 855am. Otherwise, you may be listening to our podcast online. Um, do sign up to all of the breakfast podcasts here on 3CR Community Radio. We've got one for at least four of our breakfast shows. We've got Monday Breakfast, Tuesday Breakfast, Wednesday Breakfast, and Thursday Breakfast. Now, I could have just said Monday to Monday to Thursday, but those are the actual names of the podcast feeds. Don't go looking for anything fancy. Don't look for 3CR on your podcasting app. Go straight to Monday Breakfast for us, Tuesday Breakfast. Wednesday breakfast and Thursday breakfast, and you'll be able to find a daily feed, essentially, of great uh, current affairs and alternative news. Right now, we're switching over to Over the Wall, which is our regular segment at 7.50 in the morning. Enterprise agreements have to include published wage rates, you'd think so. Not anymore. Josh Cullinan explains and skewers Woolworths in the process here on Over the Wall. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we resume our chat with Josh Cullinan, Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. The topic today is Woolworths. In November of 2017, Woolworths announced that, in order to compete with Amazon, it would open four dark stores, not open to the public, but for use by Woolies pickers and packers to meet online orders. By claiming this was a new business and using a Woolies subsidiary, Jack Butler and staff as the employer, they were able to ratify a Greenfields Enterprise Agreement. The only parties to the agreement were the SDA, or Shoppers Union, the employer and the Fair Work Commission. No workers were involved, as none had yet been employed. Hidden in Section 3.1.2 of the agreement was an extraordinary provision, that the wage rates shall be secret and shall remain so. Josh Cullinan takes up the story. For those that aren't familiar, Coles and now Woolworths have stores which are called dark stores or ghost stores. They are just like an everyday store without registers and without customers. They have bakeries, they have meat departments and delis and online pickers go around that store, collect the goods for someone who's made an online order and then it goes out to be delivered. So Woolworths made this agreement, this secret deal, without involving any workers and they made the deal with the SDA and at the Fair Work Commission they had the deal approved with the redaction of all wage rates in the agreement on the basis that there were competitive pressures. I 
found out about the decision and so I wrote to the Fair Work Commission and asked for a copy of the file, which are generally publicly accessible. In the 48 hours after I wrote to the Fair Work Commission, the Fair Work Commission mysteriously made a confidentiality order suppressing the wage rates in the file as well. So the file was produced to me, but it redacted out all of the wage rates. I was able to piece together a few different elements of that document and identify that the paid wage for the average store team member would be $20.68 per hour, or $1.50 an hour less than what a Woolworths worker earns at the moment. They say it's a new enterprise, and I understand their sort of argument on that, but the reality is there are online shoppers, these pickers that go around stores at the moment, and they just go in everyday Woolworths stores. So these workers that are currently doing that work are going to be in direct competition with workers earning $1.50 an hour less in their base rates. So I understand that there was a great deal of concern about what went on in that circumstance. It's bizarre that the Fair Work Commission could ever deem it appropriate that an agreement's wage rates would be suppressed. Theoretically, a worker wouldn't be able to tell their financial or legal advisers what their agreement wage rates are. They'd be in breach of the confidentiality order. So very concerning that that's happened. Obviously, it's garnered some attention, which hopefully will limit it happening in the future, but there are already hundreds of employees now employed under that agreement at a site in Sydney and a site in Melbourne. Are you aware of any other instance where that information has been suppressed under the Fair Work Act or under previous regimes? I'm not aware of that kind of information ever being suppressed anywhere in the world. It's a bizarre scenario where Woolworths alleges that the competition of Amazon means that they can't make publicly available a $20.68 wage rate for their team members working in these types of stores. Cutting to the chase, the real issue here is they didn't want their Woolworths workers knowing that they'd done a shonky deal with the SDA, which cuts the wage rate by $1.50. Now, we're in negotiations with Woolworths supermarkets now. 100,000 workers are covered by that deal. We know where it's going. We know that they're going to end up suggesting a $20.68 wage rate. So it really was quite laughable that it was allowed to happen, but also that the SDA involved itself in that kind of scenario. shouldn't be lost as well that this kind of work is not your everyday retail work. There are other unions who have a genuine interest in picking and packing and delivery and warehousing, and those unions weren't involved in this either, and that's the NUW, the TWU and others. So it was really... There's no other way to put it, but a, just a dodgy deal that was done. And I have never seen any other agreement in Australia or the world that would redact the wage rates so that workers weren't able to get genuine and fair industrial advice. In our view as well, it breaches the freedom of association principles where these workers should be able to go into any industrial representative they want to get advice about their agreement and their rights and their wages. And it's very disappointing that the Fair Work Commission would allow this to happen. Josh went on to explain how the situation came to be and how it demonstrates the Fair Work Commission's reluctance to take on the major retailers and the SDA. I think that the fundamental basis for why this was allowed to happen is the same basis for how a million workers have lost billions of dollars in penalty rates. The practical issue is that the Fair Work Commission was prepared to take the word of this mega corporation and the organisation of employees that it recruits workers to and have no contradictor. And any Fair Work Commissioner should have sat back and thought, well, what's going on here? Is this genuine? Is there a contradicting voice in this? And 
just like with the penalty rates and the free uniforms and the shift rates and everything else that has been taken from these workers under other Fair Work Commission decisions, this is just another example. In our view, the Fair Work Commission should take responsibility for it. It shouldn't rely on someone now appealing that decision and seeing through their appeal. The Fair Work Commission should be able to be strong enough to stand up and say, well, look, we probably made a mistake here. Let's deal with that. Next, Josh gave a rundown of current negotiations on the main agreement between Woolies and its staff and how they are shaping up. So we kicked off our Woolworths campaign in October last year and then in November our members unanimously endorsed our claims and we wrote to Woolworths in late November of 2017. Woolworths got in touch and agreed that they would recommence bargaining. They'd done nothing for almost two years and so in January we met with Woolworths and negotiations kicked off in February. We have a fantastic team of worker activists and we took our team to Sydney for the first meeting where they met with the Meat Workers Union, the SDA and Woolworths. Our members, two young women and two men, were the only Woolworths workers in the room and they were the only workers who were able to actually tell about their experience working at Woolworths and their experience being paid so much less than the minimum award wages. And they participated and continued to participate weekly in meetings with Woolworths trying to impress upon Woolworths and the other bargaining reps the importance of returning the wages that have been stripped from their pay packets and all the other conditions which have been taken from Woolworths workers over the past decades. Those negotiations are going slowly. Woolworths is obviously very minded to getting the cheapest package it possibly can. Any new agreement will have to return the penalty rates. I think that that's undeniable now but they have already indicated they will not be paying back pay for what probably is billions of dollars taken from Woolworths wages over the last 20 years. And so our campaigns there are just slowly building and we have very many members on board now right across the country. So our campaign will just escalate from here on about trying to impress upon the company the need to have a package which is satisfactory to all workers. Woolies is in no hurry to draw up a new agreement. The termination of the Coles Enterprise Agreement in 2016 shows a new way forward for unions and workers, as Josh explained. Coles only came to an agreement because it was facing termination applications with backdated wages. Here, Woolworths is having negotiations. It's hard to believe that they will resolve a new agreement that will pay workers a very large amount more without being required to. And so it would not surprise us if negotiations become somewhat stalled or slow and a termination application by a worker is the only way to encourage them to come to a final arrangement. We thank Mr Cullinan for his time and expertise. When next we talk to him, we cover the fight with Baker's Delight and the fight against casualisation. I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. 
but I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. There is listener sponsors who keep the radio station going. When you become a listener sponsor, you get a part of this radio station. You get a little part of it. It's yours. You get a little share of it. It's 3CR Subscriber Drive and we're asking you to show your love for 3CR. Support your favourite show by calling us on 9419 8377 or online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. $35 unwaged, $70 waged or $150 Subscribe to 3CR today. People lining up uh, out in the street, uh, out in Smith Street and Collingwood, lining up to take out their listener sponsorship. And you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast on 855 AM. You may be listening to our podcast. I'm really plugging the podcast just to remind everyone, uh, four days a week, Monday Breakfast, Tuesday Breakfast, Wednesday Breakfast and Thursday Breakfast. Those are the names of the podcast feed. So jump onto your podcasting app, whether it's CastBox or Podcast Addict or if it's uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever you've got on your phone, subscribe and you can hear the, uh, the highlights and the best of um, breakfast shows here on 3CR Community Radio. Um, now we're going to be talking about a book of poetry called False Claims of Colonial Thieves, brought out by Magabala Books. Uh, False Claims of Colonial Thieves is a collection of poetry that interleaves stories about uh, colonization, resisting colonization of um, of uh, of country and of culture. And to tell us about the poems in this book, we've got Charmaine Paper Talk Green, one of the two authors, alongside John Kinsella. Charmaine, you there on the phone? Yes, I am. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. Um, so just to get us started, um, the title of the book is False Claims of Colonial Thieves. Um, the, 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 that is not um, metaphor or anything. You, um, you literally refer to the false claims of people who thieve, uh, steal. Who, who are you referring to and what, what do you mean by false False claims of um, colonial thieves are a lot of the things such as um, nullius, all the claim that Australia was empty and a wasteland and no one was here, so from the very beginning. So that's a false claim to start off with Mm. because there were lots of Aboriginal nations on this land and it lived here. The false claim of people discovering Australia because people were already here. Aboriginal people. So there's a whole list of false claims that people make in regards to um, Aboriginal people in this country. 
That's right. Now, you made, made reference to, to country. Can you tell us a bit about your country and connection to country and how that's figured into the, um, the poems that you've written for this book? Okay. Um, well, I'm from Western Australia, so I'm from a, in the Midwest of Western Australia, and it's, we call it, well, it's known as the Yamaji region, and we refer to ourselves as Yamaji people, even though we have um, a whole list of different clans and cultural groups there. I belong to the Wadjuri and Budimai people and my paternal grandfather is a Nanangadi and that's a traditional name for the people that um, come from the Geraldton area. So I live in Geraldton and um, c- country, that's, that's what we refer to as country. We use the term country in a different way to um, when you talk about a country like you'd say Australia is a country. Well, we say our ancestral track of lands are our country. This is our connection. This is where our ancestors, this is where we were created from. And it's that connection to country that many of us hold really strongly within us and spiritually um, and culturally. Yeah. Mm. Now, as I was reading through the poetry in your book, it's very much a conversation between yourself and John Kinsella, and I might ask you more about the relationship in the moment, your your creative relationship. Um, but I, yeah. I just I was really struck by the there there are two I suppose you'd call them antagonists, although maybe I shouldn't be speaking about them in such um such straightforward terms. But there's the um there's the spectre of mining in Western Australia that is um that's that's quite insidious at least in, as, as you write about it and then there's also whores and the um the church in in the town where you grew up um can you tell us yeah. about um both mining and the catholic church and how um so why, why you decided to write about them in this way like what what power have they had over over your life or at least over the over the land um did you want me to read one of the uh, Actually, yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, one from Hawes, God's Intruder, and then I can yeah. um, just talk a little bit about it. Yes, please. I, I think uh-huh. um, we, we were speaking um, before the interview, and I cheekily asked if you could read out. Um, yeah. it's, I think it's verse 2 from, from God's Intruder. Yeah, so yes. I'll just read that out first, and wonderful. then have a little bit of a yarn around <laughs> Thank Hawes. Thanks. Um, okay, so this one's Hawes, God's Intruder, galloping in. Bible and cross in hand. Whores, God's intruder. Altar stone of the earth, intruding on our banner. In the name of collateralism. Bow your head and conform, for this is now the white world. Whores, God's intruder. Onto our banner. A campsite, a home. A living place, a place of our ceremonies. Long before it was called Mass Rock. Whores, God's intruder. Some of the um, some of the things behind writing about whores, and he, everyone can called him Monsignor Whores, and he'd lived in Mullawar and other parts of um, Western Australia as well, where he built these magnificent um, churches or or structures, and they really are something to look at. Mm. But the thing that really struck me is um, Aboriginal people weren't allowed into the churches to pray at that time. And one of our traditional campsites where my mum and her family grew up as a little kid 
on the outskirts of Mullawar in the bush, he decided that he would take his religion to my mum and her family and their people. Um, so he built an altar uh, on a on a rock structure at their campsite so that they could come and listen to him. And he'd go up there on his horse. But the thing that really struck me over time is that people remember this space because of the altar he built, but they don't remember the space as the traditional campsite of my people. So we get, we become, my people's space becomes obsolete. It's Chinese. The, the English and the way it's talked about is written off the pages of history. This, to me, is quite cruel and it's unfair. And I preference and I privilege my mum and her family's history because this is where my cousins were born, out in the bush, not in the hospital. This was a place where they lived, they danced, they cried, and they lived a harsh life out there in small shelters and campsites made of whatever they could find. For that to be all erased and for people to say, this is now mass rock, to me is wrong. Yeah, and there's, um, you, you you do a really fantastic job, like uh, speaking as an outsider reading this, um, it seems like you do a really fantastic job of honouring um, the, the knowledge which has existed for a very long time and part of that is the incorporation of Wajari language into um, some of the the poetry. Most of the poetry is in English, um, but parts yeah. of it um, incorporates, I suppose, ideas that can't be explained in English. Or what, what was the decision behind, um, for example, there's a poem that I might ask you to read out um, in a moment called, uh, or actually I won't try to pr- pronounce it, but it's um, uh, on page 91 of the book of poetry. Um, uh, but it's... it's it refers to a certain idea, which I'm not familiar with, um, but the use of the Wajari language gives such a strong idea of place and an idea of a continuous culture um, that still has meaning, um, which I find really interesting. What was the decision behind that? Is, just, is it just that there's no word for it in English, or is it, um, was it a, a conscious choice? It's a conscious choice using Wajari um, because we only have a small number of fluent speakers left and most of us use Wajari in with our English and it's called Aboriginal English and it's an official language of Australia. So I I like to use the Wajari words I know and I like to use Wajari and mix it in with the English because that's the way the life is. That's the way things are. Not one culture has um, erased our language or raised us. And the one you're talking about is the Nana Jungu Yagu. So I might just read that one out if you don't mind. Yes, please. Thank you. Yeah. So Nana Jungu Yagu, my mother, belonged to me, always told me, walk tall and strong, little Nyaru me. Nana Jungu Yagu, my mother, belonged to me, always told me, don't be afraid in any space. This land is old. Your ancestor spirits will protect you, for they remember all those who belong and come from it. Nana Jungu Yagu, 
my mother belonged to me. Now in that land, her spirit watches over me as I move around on this land. Ngana Jungu Yagu, that means, Ngana Jungu means, Yagu means my mother. Mm. Yagu is mother. Ngana Jungu is, means belong to me, or I belong to mother. Wow. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for for reading your poetry. I'm afraid we've run out of time for the the interview today, but it's been beautiful having you on the on the show. I just want to remind folks listening at home: the book is called "False Claims of Colonial Thieves," and it's a collaboration between uh, Charmaine Paper Talk Green, who we've been speaking to, and John Kinsella. Um, it's published by Magabala Books, and it's available in stores in good bookstores now. Um, Charmaine, thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the interview. Have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Hi, we're from Braver College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. Woo! Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome, and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. La, la, la. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast 855 on your radio dial. And next weekend, many of our listeners may know, we have the annual Marxism 2000. An 18 conference, which looks through a dialectical materialist lens at the world we're living in. The theme for this year's uh, conference is Radical Ideas for a World in Turmoil, and it features leftist thinkers from all over Australia and around the world. Now, there are still some tickets left, I believe, and well... Oh, yes, there are, yep. And that's the voice of <laughs> Ros Ward, who is the media coordinator for the conference this year, as well as being a progressive revolutionary actor in a number of fields. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Radical Ideas for a World in Turmoil. How was the concept for this year's conference um, come up with? Well, um, for a few years we've had the theme of the conference, um, just ideas to change the world. And I think this year we felt that there was a general sense of urgency (laughs) around um, kind of international politics and even in Australia that we had to sort of say something more than that. And so, I guess Trump being a big thing in that, um, thinking about a world in turmoil, the potential for sort of nuclear war, it's a bit scary um, you know, the massive global refugee crisis of which Australia is um, leading the way in barbarity uh, you know, um, the Middle East, Syria so it's not too hard to find turmoil when you look around the world and I guess that's what we want to understand and we also want to do something to change yeah, I mean, I just look at all the authoritarian kind of populist despots springing up all over the world as well. Yeah, there's a sense of real polarisation, I think, because of the kind of flow-through of the economic crisis in the last 10 years, and um, a lot of that has been going to the right, unfortunately, rather than uh, to the left. So we want to sort of rebuild the radical left in Australia and as part of an international um, kind of revolutionary socialist uh, movement that we're part of here in Australia as well, I think it's important. Mm. I guess, um, you know, like as Marx kind of said, that the crisis in capitalism can breed change and, you know, kind of like lay the grounds for trying to affect change. And we've seen in some ways um, more social democratic kind of leaders emerge of the um, 
Corbyns and um, Bernie Sanders of the worlds and all that kind of thing. And I guess Socialist Alternative has kind of um, uh, looked at that kind of thing to move into the Victorian socialists, um, get involved in parliamentary democracy as well. And is that kind of that something that's going to be spoken about at the Marxism conference as well? Yeah, it is. it's um, on the Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock. We're having a session, which is the first time that the three candidates for the new Victorian Socialist Party are um, going to be speaking. So Steve Jolly, um, Sue Bolton and Colleen Bolger. So Steve's been around, as people know, for a long time on the left. Sue Bolton's been a councillor for Socialist Alliance and Colleen's a member of Socialist Alternative. So that idea of left unity at the moment, um, especially, I think, to have a voice in mainstream politics, not because we suddenly think that Parliament is the way to change the world, but that there needs to be some alternative on the left and that maybe, you know, I don't think we have um, grand designs on anything quite like Bernie Sanders or Corbyn, and it's a bit different here, but just having a voice on the left that can say some socialist things in Parliament I think would be a big step forward because, you know, you see Daniel Andrews bringing out the Robocop uniforms and guns and mm. everything this weekend and you start exciting. to wonder just how left-wing um, the Andrews government actually is. So, yeah, a socialist, a uh, Victorian socialist is about trying to, you know, have that voice um, in politics in a slightly more mainstream way. We'll, we'll see how it goes, but anyone wants to get involved in that, there's a website separately that people can register to support the Victorian Socialists as well, as well as coming to Marxism and hearing from them at the conference. How are ticket sales going this year? It seems to be generating Really a lot well, of yeah. Um, we've sold over 900 tickets so far, which is fantastic. We usually sell a few more in the last week and then people can just turn up whenever at the conference and get a ticket and, and join us. We hope to have, yeah, over 1,000 people joining in all of these um, really important discussions, hearing from these amazing international speakers, and just sort of being part of um, you know, an activist movement on a lot of different questions of social justice, uh, the environment, um, racism, sexism, homophobia, all of those kind of things, and then the sort of streams that talk about um, why we look to workers to change the world, the industrial uh, scene at the moment in Australia, and um, then I think a really important stream on fighting the far right and how we can learn from history to do that most effectively, and that's something I've been involved in as well a bit this year uh, with the campaign against racism and fascism here in, in Melbourne as well. So a lot of really important things, and a lot of people coming to talk about it. So if there's any way you can get down to VCI over Easter weekend, then please, um, everyone's welcome. One of the guests that um, I'm really interested in hearing is Helen Razor, and I think that the session is 11 o'clock on Saturday. Yeah, 11.30, yep. 11.30. Um, and I think one of the um, things that, you know, Helen has been speaking about over the past kind of year is, you know, a lot of the politics um, and the way it's been talked about in the media a lot these days is very, um, you know, black and white. It's this or it's this. And, you know, I think that she's spoken a lot about the kind of things that lay in between that and um, the kind of the grey areas of, of issues that are... <laughs> I feel like her voice has been something that's been um, a really important voice that's getting out into some more mainstream views. Yeah, Helen's um, book as well on, um, what is it called? Total Propaganda, Marxism for... The Millennials. Millen the yep. young people and the people who want to be young or something. I don't know, yeah. It's a good book anyway for people who are new to Marxism. And I think it's been really great that she's, uh, you know, in her her style and her... Um, approach to things has always been the same that she likes to be loud and vocal and controversial and you know mouthy as she would 
put it. Um, but to have her now talking about Marxism and thinking about those ideas, and actually she thinks and, and talks a lot about economics um, in a really Marxist way, mm. it's useful, I think, because... You know, there's no, I don't think we need to divide kind of cultural social questions from economic questions in the way that kind of capitalism wants you to do. Mm. And I think she's really good at bringing those things together. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I mean, you've certainly been the target of a lot of right-wing media using that word pejoratively to describe you. You know, you're a Marxist, you're a social engineer. And a cultural Marxist. A cultural which Marxist. Which is slightly pejorative, yeah. to be honest. Um, <laughs> But I wanted to ask, you know, just you know, for my own edification as well, how did you come to these ideas and what made you embrace them in the way that you have? Well, um, it's actually 10 years since I joined Socialist Alternative this year, and that was in 2008. So when the economic crisis was starting to unfold in American politics, you know, I've been an activist for a long time in, in queer politics in Britain and, um, you know, on the left definitely and involved in student politics and I think it was then that really I started thinking about kind of how just focusing on single kind of issue things or particular things about me and my identity and whatever was not really satisfying enough for me to understand um, sort of the forms of oppression that I might have experienced and other people experience and then what you can do about it. And I think reading more and getting more involved in socialist um, politics has helped me understand the connections between different forms of oppression and then kind of wanting to do something about um, the system that that underpins all of it, which we all know is capitalism. But, you know, like, it's not some small task and it's not, it, it's not um, a small thing, I don't think, to be a Marxist, but I think it's a really important uh, thing for people to just think about, you know, understanding the world and what role they want to play as an activist and Marxism, you know, for me, makes the most sense. So tell us a bit about some of the international guests you've got lined up uh, coming along this weekend. Yep. So we have um, Hawaida Araf, who's a Palestinian-American activist um, who was on the Freedom Flotilla trying to break the siege on Gaza back in 2010. She was a founder of the International Social um, Solidarity Movement with Palestine. She's a pretty amazing speaker. She now works um, as a sort of a human rights lawyer on the Flint water case in, in America mm. where they've mm. led poison the water and she's working for people who've been uh, victims of that, survivors of that, I guess. Uh, Bashka Sankara, who's the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin. Mm. This is pretty... I think this is pretty incredible for people who know Jacobin that, um, you know, that's a publication now in print and online that reaches over a million people a month that has over 30,000 subscribers to this print journal. And it's not lightweight. It's pretty, um, yeah, it's pretty serious discussion on the left. And he's coming and I think he can see the value of our conference as part of the international left as well. So there are a couple of highlights um, we also have speakers from Turkey, from Spain, from um, someone from the Catalonian independence struggle in, in, in Catalonia. So there's a whole bunch of different people um, from around the region as well, um, from the Philippines, from Indonesia. So it's really a very much kind of we are internationalists and the conference is very much an internationalist conference. So it launches on Thursday night at Collingwood uh, Town Hall, is that right? Yeah, so just um, Collingwood Town Hall for the opening night Thursday starts at 7 and the rest of the weekend's down at the Victorian College of the Arts. 
on St Kilda Road, you get in just through the front door there or more? Yeah, and just check public transport because there's all sorts of crazy Easter works going on. Mm-hmm. It's going to be busy in the city. Look, thank you so much for joining us this morning and for uh, letting everybody know about the conference that's going to be coming on. Um, I thought there were a few little messages we wanted to give out at the end of the day. Definitely. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. Thank you. No worries. <laughs> um, well, yeah, basically you can find the Marxism Conference at marxismconference.org and um, there's, there's more information on the highlights and that sort of thing. Um, also, we've got um, coverage on the Stolen Wealth Games projects coming up. Um, that'll be uh, in April. April 4th to April 15th is when the right. um, Commonwealth and the, so, you know, the, yeah. and the Stolen Wealth Games will be happening yes. in regards to that. So we'll be taking um, uh, interviews and, and coverage from that on all the breakfast shows throughout that uh, two-week period. That's right, trying to give you updates every morning. Um, Folks, thank you so much for tuning in to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Um, every morning, 7am is when you have our breakfast shows. On Tuesday, we'll have some great intersectional feminist chat and also um, current affairs ref- um, relating to um, sort of inter- intersectional feminist ideas and beyond. And so definitely tune into that um, every, mo- every morning, 7am. Uh, you're listening to 3CR Radio. Um, just Just very quickly again, I know I'm going really heavy on the podcast, folks, but Monday Breakfast... Tuesday breakfast, Wednesday breakfast, and Thursday breakfast. We are now publishing every week, so definitely sign up for each of those podcast feeds. Um, did we have anything else that we wanted to to bring up coming up in the future? Not that I can remember. No, honestly, there's just so much going on um, in in the in the next few weeks. So definitely do tune in and follow 3CR on on Twitter because that's they put up so much content, so many articles and upcoming interviews that you can follow. So Twitter. At 3CR is how you'd be able to follow us. Um, next up is Women on the Line. And uh, again, th- have a great day. Have a great week, folks. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.